don't have to like everything we say. You don't have to listen to us. you're thinking it's probably old news at this point and uh, you can tell by the title we're not even gonna talk about ukraine yet that will be the next time i do something like this will be like two or three shows i think two episodes from now we're gonna do finland talking about the single greatest threat to russia today is finland joining nato i'm gonna explain why so you can understand that back in the day when so many of us got it wrong if russia would have taken ukraine down very quickly the next logical step and the only logical step they would have taken is went north to finland to finish taking out those countries from Crimea North to secure their borders and their areas. I'm going to explain in depth, in detail, doing sort of a history discussion, a little bit of an area study so that you can understand what that's about. So stay tuned because that's coming up next. You know, every time I have to, this time sucked. It was a pretty serious situation when I had to take a break for so long. But every time that happens, I get back on here. I'm like, man, I miss my studio. I miss having a studio, everything's set up, ready to go. And then it's really because it takes so long before I get back and do this. When I take these big breaks, I got to refigure things out. But happily, I can I have Starlink now, so I can do these rather consistently. And not have to worry about driving the internet somewhere as I am up in the mountains of Idaho doing some fishing and camping and seeing what it's like for people to be dirty and gross. So yeah, that makes me miss the army. So today we're going to talk about Finland to kick things off, get this started so we can look and understand the importance of this entire thing of Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Now, a lot of the things that are general, not specific, do apply also to Sweden. Finland is on their border that's why Finland is a bigger deal. It's also why it was a kind of a bigger negotiation. The thing to note, too, is while you're listening to this, if you're not, say, driving, because I, I got guys, like, message me, and name's not on top of my head right now, but, like, your deal with vending machines and stuff, guys say, hey, I'm spending all day with you, and I really appreciate that. But for those that can later or you are at home, you may want to pull up a map and take a look at it. If you're doing that, you want to have Finland there, it doesn't necessarily need to be the center. You just need to realize that northern parts of that country are in the Arctic Circle. If you can see the Arctic Circle, that's great. You want to be able to see down south of Finland and Sweden into the Baltic Sea. In fact, southwest entrance to the Baltic Sea is called the Danish Straits. You want to be able to see that. You want to be able to see a little bit into Europe. You want to be seeing some of these southern Baltic states like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and the Kaliningrad area, as well as Belarus there. And then to the east of Finland, you want to see a peninsula called the Kola Peninsula, and a little bit of the body of the water to the right called the White Sea. If you can see that bordered area, you'll see everything we're going to talk about. To start with, the second largest border area shared with Russia is Finland. 
at 800 miles. That is essentially a no man's land. It's bad weather, hard to patrol, people don't go there, almost nobody lives up there. It's very difficult to defend for both sides, very difficult to guard, very difficult to monitor, but nobody's really paid a whole lot of attention to it. thing about that border is it's very close to the town of St. Petersburg. That's the second largest town in Russia, Putin's hometown of about 5 million people. Finland has about 5.5 million, so population size, by country, they're outnumbered about 28 to 1. And that area is only about 90 to 100 miles, about 150 kilometers, St. Petersburg is, from Finland. So one of the historic threats we'll talk about, and as you look at the map, is realizing that that town is of significant importance to Russia, all those factors, plus it's about 5% of its economy. The concern is, one of the one of the many concerns we'll discuss is that if Finland ever joins NATO, that they can just simply cross over there quite easily and make their way into St. Petersburg and take it over. Oh, I got to figure the layout. I have, I have yet to actually have to have a script or notes until right now, so now I'm like, oh, this is not, not ideal. Okay, so, so joining NATO means manpower and possibly military activity in Finland. It's not sure today where they're standing on it, but most likely they're going to take the Norway position of not having military bases, a sort of, sort of going for the neutrality while being part of NATO. The entire history of Finland, as we'll discuss, is about neutrality for their own defense against Russia. Russia's worked hard uh, trying to persuade Finland to remain neutral. This has been going on for about 200 years since the times of Napoleon. And Finland joining NATO is now the single biggest foreign policy failure that has happened to the state of Russia from the invasion of Ukraine. Despite all of the things that happened, their single big failure because of their history and what they're trying to do was Finland joining NATO. They have really kind of screwed the pooch on this one. Back in the times of Napoleon 200 years ago, Swedish controlled Finland and they aligned with the British while the Russians aligned with France. And St. Petersburg was the Russian capital. Back then it was called Leningrad. Now, Russia demanded that Swedes close their ports in the Baltic Sea area, which were across across the whole sea in the areas become known as Finland as well as Sweden. Of course, Sweden denies. It says, no, we're not going to do that. So Russia invaded Sweden and Finland, and they very quickly dominated and overtook Finland and completely defeated the Swedes in less than a year, which in the time frame was a pretty good, pretty good pace. And the area that we know as Finland, as well as if you want to take a look at the history of this, you'll find that Finland was a little bit bigger was all seceded over to Russia and became part of the Russian Federation. Controlling that Finland area, what is now and what was before Finland, makes the sea invasion of Russia and St. Petersburg pretty unrealistic for all the modern militaries of the time. And that was also the last war that Sweden fought. They remained neutral for over 200 years until 2022 with the invasion of Ukraine. The invasion of Ukraine, what that really signaled to Sweden and Finland was, you know, back in the time when they invaded Crimea, the Finns voted about joining NATO. And it was like 23% or 22%, something like I said, yeah, yeah, it was probably a good idea. They didn't even need a vote when it came time for Ukraine invading. They needed to know the details. Because Russia's invasion of Ukraine was really kind of putting it all on the line. And if you didn't see it then, you can see it now based, based on the length of the war, the total devastation it's had on both sides and what it's done to the Russian economy and their military. And knowing that they're willing to do that and how far they're willing to go, and of course St. Petersburg being Putin's hometown, it's a big deal. 
the Finns and the Swedes realized that they're probably next, and that is the correct assessment. Part of that was done through Intel channels of them all being like, hey, you're next. This is, we've all been thinking it. Now we need to look at it. And that's why they said, hey, we need to, uh, we need to join NATO and get on an alliance so we can slow this down. So after this last war that Sweden fought, about 100 years later, you had the Russian Revolution, where several states or pieces of former Russia that became their own states, including Finland, decided to go for independence. This started a long series of battles on and off invasions with Russia back and forth in the Finland area, negotiating over different pieces of land until Finland was left alone to kind of be their own thing and kind of not. Russia did eventually invade. And the reason they had to negotiate for all these territories is in that war, they took four times the amount of ca ca casualties as the Finnish. The thing with the Finnish, we'll get into details of their military later, but from the time frame in that hundred years until now, they continued to focus their entire country, their entire populace, on being ready as a reserve military force, focusing on defense against Soviet invasion. That's part of the reason why, as advanced as the Soviet military was in experience in war, they had a tough time because they were prepared. Imagine if the Ukrainians were that prepared, what that war would look like. Now, interesting enough, we've talked about things in the past, and one of the things you can look into is why this land went back and forth, which pieces they wanted, and, and they were, it was all around the country of who wanted what. But to give an example of some of the importance, one of the, one of the many pieces that Finland seceded over Russia eventually became one small part of the area the Nord pipeline had to go through. So there was things being planned a long, long time ago before even modern technology could make it capable that had to do with the way treaties are signed and wars are fought and negotiations are had because the countries look at things over decades and the future of what they plan to do, even if the technology isn't there. Now, when you fast forward in the time of the World Wars, you find that in World War II, the Finns actually joined Nazi Germany to invade Leningrad. It's not that they were necessarily Nazi or pro-Nazi, they were anti-Russian. And that's part of the reason why they sided with the Germans. But of course, the Germans lost the war, so the Finns went officially neutral. They didn't join the Warsaw Pact or join NATO. They stayed solitary on their own. So while they're still a threat to Russia, because they didn't join either side, while they're not pro-Russia necessarily with the Warsaw Pact, they're also not against Russia with NATO, and Russia was able to focus on a lot of other things, including their own recovery from the war, but still pay attention to Russia as one of the many things they need to work on in the future. So while Russia's working on that, what Finland worked on was building up their military service through conscription and mandatory service, which even to today, 73% of the voting population is in favor of. And they have the largest reserve force, uh, one of the largest ones anyway, in that theater. In fact, if you took Germany, Italy, and France's reserve forces and combine them, they wouldn't even touch that of the fence. Additionally, at the time frame and up till now, 75% of the men are in the military or military reserves. Also through most of that time frame till now, considering the size of the country, military spending for Finland would be considered exceptionally high. They spent a lot of money in preparing for defense long before joining or considering to join NATO. And in many ways, their equipment and their training supersedes most NATO countries. Now let's talk about that map you're looking at, or eventually you will be looking at. One of the things to know is you look at all the countries around the Baltic Sea, and if you think about the colors, if you were to make them two colors, so many of them are going to be one color now, being NATO, that the Baltic Sea, some people are calling the NATO Lake, 
is essentially what it's going to turn into, where the majority of that ground will be covered, monitored by NATO nations. That also gives them direct waterway access to St. Petersburg. That also surrounds Kaliningrad, which is just northwest of Belarus, right there on the Baltic Sea in the southeast portion of the Baltic Sea. Now down in the Danish Straits in the southwest side of the Baltic Sea, and then up in the northeast side where we have the Gulf of Finland, that is now going to be completely NATO-controlled. One thing to note about this area is those waterways are considered shallow overall compared to other seas. The countries are now going to be able to share surveillance, sonar activity. What they're permanently removing is any anonymity of Russian submarines and warships to move freely throughout that area. Another thing you can see too, if you look in the middle of the Baltic Sea, is a piece of land called the Gotland Island. It's right in the center. And that will become, if it isn't already, <laughs> it'll quickly probably become a NATO airbase. Or at least an airbase belonging to one of those nations, but they are part of NATO now. What that does is give them sea and air monitoring capability not necessarily superiority, but reactionary capability throughout that entire area and the European theater, well up into the Arctic Circle. Another thing that happens with all this area now being NATO is if you look at those lower Baltic states of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, they go from what previously we would consider our least defensible states to definitely protected states on par with any other area in NATO, at least as it stands right now. And then any move that could happen from Belarus across the Slovaki Gap, which is the area northwest of Belarus between Belarus to Kaliningrad. That no longer will isolate those states as the whole area up in the north in the Baltic Sea is now going to be NATO controlled. It removes any idea Russia has of taking those states. So the initial plan, planning phase strategic action of Russia that we've always believed is possible is that in those three Baltic states, Lithuania, Lithuania, or Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, that within 60 hours or less, they would be able to move in, take down the capitals, and take control of all three states within 60 hours of any type of warfare or battle. Now, I many considered that to be the next move, especially being next to Kaliningrad, it wouldn't have been. Finland would have been the move and the move they needed to make, especially with Finland and Sweden being non-NATO countries. That's, that's before now. That would have been the move to make. Then when they've then surrounded those minor countries, which has given them time to evacuate and they can pull the humanitarian card, they could do similar to what Israel's doing now and just tell them to get out of there and then go in and take it over. And it would be so unprotected at that point. It's unlikely NATO, unless they were a full-fledged war, it's unlikely NATO would have done much to try and save those three states. But now that possibility has been taken away. Now, if you move on up to the Kola Peninsula, as in drinking rum and coca, it's Kola with a K, as in Kola Bear, that's northeast of Finland. So this is one of our most militarized areas on Earth. <laughs> it's a different type of weaponry, but if you think about the, the DMZ in the Koreas being so heavily militarized, this is, this is uh, more significant. There's multiple launch sites and platforms, nuclear capabilities for ICBM subsurface you know, silos to launch um, nuclear missiles anywhere in the world. They also have strategic bombers, including the, the fastest strategic bomber on the planet that flies twice the speed of sound, all up in this area around and under the command of what's called the Northern Fleet, which is based in Murmansk. But there is several across the waterway there from Kola, even to the east side of Kola farther, are several bases, mostly Navy, but some air bases. Because they can fly over the Arctic Circle, they can reach, easily reach and devastate 
through nuclear power most of the planet. Now, that shouldn't scare you. I mean, we have similar capabilities. A lot of people do. It was just to outline the importance of this area. This is getting into more deep, understanding why this area is important. And so why we've looked at what Finland's done and from their history and then what Finland's trying to defend and the strategic capabilities of the area that NATO now gained, we're going to look at the strategic losses and other things that Russia has as we move farther east. Now, one thing to note is that the port in Murmansk is actually pretty significant because it's in the Arctic Circle, but the water doesn't actually freeze. The reason why is it has to do with the northern jet stream up there and the way that it travels. It actually keeps that water area free from ice. It's also in the area are some of the most advanced nuclear submarines in the world as far as their main submarine fleet. From there, they have complete freedom of movement under the ice with subs, a lot more than the rest of NATO does because of their advanced submarine capabilities and not having a frozen port as well as the other assets they have there. And that benefit of the weather is of obviously much significance as far as resupply goes, morale, many things that are going to matter in a war. But the downside is, as there's, there's a highway and a railway that parallel each other, that are only about 100 kilometers from Finland, paralleling the entire border, about 90 miles away, called the R21. So this is the main supply ground route to these bases and the Northern Fleet. Now, granted, there's some air capabilities for resupply, but mainly they even still today use this area. And then considering what I said before about the defense of that border, it actually, even now, wouldn't be difficult for anybody in NATO, being all NATO countries, that during a war or to whatever type of warfare action to come in and either destroy or occupy any or all parts of that roadway and railway devastating that base now that would definitely be a precursor action to take to destroying the base or doing some invasion other than like nuking those say we're say there's a war but there's no nukes involved yet one of the things to be able to stop that nuclear capability and they would need to take that relatively quickly and relatively fast the danger that poses because again had russia quickly taken down Ukraine, Finland would have been next. I don't know that they would have done it already, but it would have been a quicker time period than going from Crimea to Ukraine. That would have been a consideration. And Finland, while Finland is militarily capable of taking on the Russian army, which people would have never thought until now, they definitely were before, but obviously now they can. The concern would be if it looks like you could lose that base, you could lose that area, any of the Northern Fleet, especially the nuclear assets there, just like any other piece of equipment. You have to consider your two options. Your two options are I lose it or I use it. And that would be the real fear because of what's there. We have nuclear-capable submarines that carry dozens of warheads. You have some of the fastest strategic bombers in the world and multiple ICBM launch sites. Putting a country in the position where they can't have a way out is a very dangerous thing to do just like backing an animal into a corner that could happen to any nation. And if it comes to a use it or lose it situation and you have powerful weapons like nukes, if somebody is crazy enough, we're likely to see them use it. And that's probably the route that would have went. And again, it's important to note that that's because aside from you don't want to lose control of that and you don't want to lose your war, all of those assets are completely capable of not only reaching all of NATO, but all of our Western allies and anywhere else on the planet, most of it rather quickly, since about something like 85% or 80% of the human population lives north of the equator in the northern hemisphere. They have the capability from that one location to reach all of it. 
Now, if that's not enough to intrigue you, something that should would be what's called Zarbamba. Zarbamba was, used to be, the world's largest nuclear weapon at 15 megatons. That has been tested. You can look it up. But one of the things that Russia's developed now, because that was obviously a czar, a Russian weapon, is the Poseidon torpedo, which is essentially a drone-style torpedo that is 100 megatons. That is on the new Belgorod sub, which was stationed close to the Northern Fleet headquarters. What would look suspiciously around the time frame of Sweden and Finland talking about joining NATO, it probably was repositioned there because of those talks. So it could be seen as a, hey, you don't want to do this. But really, that's more of a motivation of why you would join. Because despite their abilities to actually fend for themselves, especially Finland, it doesn't mean it would stop Russia from trying to invade them. And having NATO allies could definitely slow that plan down and look more towards a larger world affair issue. The other thing, too, is looking at these locations. One thing I mentioned, too, about the Arctic is having Sweden and Finland there sharing all that surveillance. All land-owned owning countries in the Arctic now are NATO members with the exception of Russia. So there'll be more monitoring, more information sharing. So that freedom of movement under the ice that the subs have always had, they can still do it, but with complete anonymity is unlikely, at least all the time. They still have plenty of area to cover that they can do a lot with their advanced submarines. But more and more naval assets and submarines have been moving up into the area. This is why, this is one of the reasons why when David talks about his, um, I think it's five hot zones, I think it's five. I'd say, yeah, you got to make it six and count the Arctic because that's about to become into play, which I, I tell him, told him a year ago or so. But that's what we're looking at now. Additionally, I want to add in, imagine if trade went through the Arctic, especially with, you already have an area where Russia could uh, theoretically do it. They didn't, waters don't freeze there, right? But then it doesn't matter what your position is on the environment. One thing we know for sure is there's less ice in a lot more areas where ships can go and move freely. One of the issues we're running into now that could affect this area in the Arctic is shipping lanes because places like the Panama Canal, you should do some research on that, check it out. You'll find that they're having issues. There's actually talk and considerations of having to shut the canal down or do intermittent shutoffs. At this point, what, what it was for the longest time was you go to the Panama Canal, which is our major connection between the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean, gives you year-round access. You don't have to worry about the winter. It cuts out a lot of time. So it's this wonderful shipping port everybody uses. Panamanians took control of it uh, about 20, 25, 20 years ago. So how the canal works, which a lot of people don't realize, is it works by a series of locks. Basically, water comes in and either raises or lowers a ship with the terrain to move it across the several miles it has to go. But the thing is, even though the levels are different, it's kind of going up and over like driving over a hill. And that water that they use to fill the locks is actually from freshwater lakes above the canal. They've had a lot of droughts and shortages of rainwater there, which has caused them to use the canal less and less. It used to be a standard wait time when you got in line to go through the canal was three to four days. And now they're in a period of several weeks because they can only let so many ships through because of the amount of like millions upon millions upon millions of gallons of water they have to pull from these lakes in order to make those locks work. If they don't have an increase in fresh water, they're either going to have to shut it down, cut stuff way back, or come up with another solution that's man-made, which, despite technology we have now, would take years to solve. So what would happen? One of the easiest ways to reach other ports and other areas, and would be better, would we go through the Arctic where it's cold, but there's a lot more open waterways with less ice now. 
And then that brings in a thing about securing shipping lanes and competition. Yes, much of it's NATO controlled, but here's the issue you run into. Russia clearly has no issue using his military as some sort of fleet security to some degree to guarantee freedom of movement. They've done it all over the Black Sea. They've done it in the Baltics, just like China has done in the Pacific. Every country is going to want to go through there. And it doesn't matter if you're a NATO country, NATO member or not, or neutral. The question is, how are those landowning people with navies up there going to react and say who gets to do what, where? So that's another issue we could run into despite the fact that Finland's joined NATO and taken all these possibilities away from Russia, there's still another card that could be played with Russia or anybody in the future when it comes to shipping. And this is guaranteed something that's being looked at and planned for. And part of the reason why Russia does have some advantage there is they've had anonymous freedom of movement below the ice with their subs, taking far more advantage of that than any other nation for decades. Which I got off track there, even though I didn't mean to mention that, but um, the... Anyway, the Poseidon that I was talking about, just so you're understanding of its capability. What's interesting about the submarine uh, launching the Poseidon is it's believed, theoretically, that it can travel 10,000 kilometers. That'd be the fastest and farthest going underwater. And while it could, say, pop out of the water and fly part of the way to hit land, like any other weapon, they could also detonate it underwater. Being 100 megaton, which I don't know that this has been tested to <laughs> completeness, as we would think, but an explosion like that could have other impacts aside from the environmental devastation. For example, it could cause tsunamis, even possibly what might be called a mega tsunami. It could cause earthquakes or both. It could be done close enough to land to cause not only earthquakes, but destruction from the blast to the land to cause part of a coastline to collapse within the water or experience other issues. That is to say there are many ways that especially weapons like that can be used now beyond that of just the uh, direct to target devastation of an area to impact, you know, political decisions in a war and how things are going to happen. The other thing too is the speed at which you can travel and how it's going, depending on where things are and what people's capabilities are really are to track things. And until it happens, we don't really know. It's entirely possible something like that could be launched, travel a very long way, and there is no warning. That's another possibility that has to be considered. Another thing to note is that in the locations of all the bases in the Northern Fleet, out in the Arctic Circle, the one farthest east, on the other side of the White Sea from the Kola Peninsula, is where this submarine is to be based. And then that is to say for any type of warfare or invasion, one of the first things that would likely get away or be sent away would be those submarines due to their power and military capability. So that even if they lost all other assets in the area, even all of the nuclear assets, even one of those subs with a Poseidon would be enough to cause total devastation and possibly still win the war. The reason for that is the very simple logical ways is because the distance that torpedo can travel is the sub would go underwater, you know, a great distance so that it can't be seen. So it either head east and go through the Bering Strait, past Alaska, out to wherever in the Northern Pacific, or get to the Atlantic by going through the GIUK gap by Greenland. Then the Poseidon could be theoretically fired from anywhere, travel up to 10,000 miles or 10,000 kilometers and be detonated from underwater even. Now, if that bothers you or concerns you, understand that that was an everyday reality of the world that existed your entire lifetime that you probably didn't know about. But the reason things have changed now is because Finland joined NATO and Sweden, of course, 
This does directly challenge Russia's freedom of movement, especially with their nuclear arsenal by air or sea, anywhere around the Baltics and in the Arctic. That's a good thing. We've taken that away from them. That's the direct threat they've always solved from Finland. This is a big reason why Finland was next. In fact, I understand why they went after Ukraine. I even understand why they probably thought it would have been easier because they see it as not a real country. They see it as not independent, even though the rest of the world does. Although it probably would have led to a nuclear war, in my head, my first thought was, I think it would have been smarter to try to go after Finland while you have the full force of your military might to see if you could take them because they're a neutral country. Now, would NATO have got involved in that? Very likely. Very, very likely NATO would have gotten involved in that. But the upside is we'll probably never know. The other thing to notice, too, is about the history of Finland. And if you do your own research, you need to find out that while all countries say this, one of the things the Finns and the Swedes, after, <laughs> after losing that war anyway, one of the things they have truly been about is defense and deterrence. Trying to focus mainly on the Soviets because of how many times they've been to war with them and been invaded by them or went to war against them in world wars going on for a couple of hundred years. They've seen that as their single biggest threat. And they have no desire to instigate anything with Russia. This is why I truly believe they'll take the Norway position and not allow any military bases there. Maybe they will, but that would be... You could argue that as an escalation area if it was to lead to something, but they'll probably take that. But that doesn't mean there won't be exercises in the area. Just as if it hasn't already happened, there was an air exercise that was going to be there that was smaller than the one in mainland Europe, but definitely this is this story here that I'm telling you is why I mentioned before the one in Finland is actually the bigger deal because we're now using NATO military exercise in the area. Should point out, though, even though they were not a NATO country, that's happened before. It just doesn't happen all that often. The reason for joining the alliance now is really that Russia, in a sense, had to put it all on the table to go after Ukraine. And we can definitely see now they had to put it all on the table. That's definitely slowed down any, probably slowed down any idea of them taking it further in the future or going to a place in the Baltics taking on Finland and Sweden. At least that's what we hope. This is a counter move joining them to the attack, realizing that they were lucky not to be this time, but they are the ones that were to be next. So this is a way to get more involved with NATO, build up its defense. Clearly, and you can look up the numbers, clearly Finland's bringing some military might to NATO to assist them. And one of the things they have on most countries is not just technology, but training. If you look at specifics, you'll find out certain things like, I think they have more, more tanks in Germany, for example. They've went to a lot of NATO-based weaponry and small arms systems a long, long time ago. They, they, were, they were ready to make the transition if needed. They're not dumb. They got this well planned out, and now they have a better defense. Now Russia's in a position where they've lost this freedom of movement for the nuclear arsenal. They'll have to look at other things. That is now gone as a huge failure. Things are not going well in Ukraine, even though they probably will overall win. And it'll then be decided what's going to happen. And I'm saying that as I've gotten emails and questions about things like, what's it, Prashgovin or whatever, the Wagner Group guy, and whether or not there'll be a coup or whatever. Still stands that the best way and easiest way to remove Putin power would be a coup. He does protect himself from that. As far as the questions or conspiracies about the Prashgovin guy, the Wagner guy, uh, he's dead. That, that's it. It's not a conspiracy. Putin failed to protect his buddy, basically. Um, he didn't take the security steps or 
or they chose, didn't believe they needed that level of security. It's not some multi-point conspiracy to have him removed. That's, I don't think that's likely. I think it's just a mistake, um, despite what people think was a coup. It's, he's, he's done for. It's In war, two things we forget is that conspiracies come with emotion quite often, and we think we're making connections to conspiracies when we're really not. We're cherry-picking data and trying to force it into a mold of something because it seems like truth to us. The other thing is, I don't remember who said it, but one of the famous quotes in history is that the first casualty of war is truth. And that's not only accurate, but one of the episodes in the future coming up is discussing truth versus fact, what they really are. And it'll be called How to Read the News, a class I teach that will probably actually turn into something in the future that I'm working on. So I'll be doing this thing on how to read the news, and we'll talk about truth and fact and many other things for you to compare them. I can tell you this, yet to have a person go through that class that doesn't have prior training in the intel field that understands what truth really is or fact, and people always get upset. So it could be a hard one to listen to. We'll see. But that will be coming up, and obviously a few others. I have gotten emails from people, and yes, I've got the little self-help tidbits, the cool tips and tricks, trade craft, that type of stuff. I'm going to be doing more of that. And I will talk more about other things we're planning in the future. But we've got Starlink now, right now in the middle of Idaho mountains, right here on, what is it? Same day I'm releasing this, October 22nd. And we got some nice weather up here. And so I'll be able to do this more often. So one thing too is I'll be checking my accounts every two, three days. So if you want to send a message or anything like that, feel free. I will get them and I will respond. And over the next few days, I'm going to be scrolling through everything I got and making a list of questions to answer. So thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon right here on Green Man, Hiding in Plain Sight.